My name's Philip, and this is gonna be a yarn about me and my pal, Marlo. Not the day we got out of the shelter, went off into the post-nuclear world, where we both dreamed of becoming private eyes, just like the ones we read about. On the planet Arcturus, he's the toughest cop around. That's a cruiser blast! Most powerful half in the universe! That's right, that point. What do you want, asshole? Nothing. You're just gonna walk away? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Coming up, we're talking some 80s fuck them kids cinema, so join the sleaze. <laughs> We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over three years now. There's something like 70, 80 bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre movies, which believe it or not, those are still coming out. And we probably have (laughs) one coming out soon on, you know, all the Warner Brothers crap that's been dropping, (laughs) like King Kong and Mortal Kombat and everything like that. Um, um, so again, patreon.com slash podcast if you would like those episodes. And speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week, so I'll give them their uh, shout-outs here real quick. Uh, we had Logan Feldman, uh, Z, <laughs> uh, John Daniel, Brendan uh, Estevez, who upgraded from his 5 to 10. He'll be joining us for the monthly virtual screenings that we do each month for the $10 patrons. I don't know what we're doing next week or this coming month, but it's going to be something crazy. We would have just done uh, body bags with John Carpenter and Toby Hooper, which is going to be fun. Um, Who else here? We got Jackson Barkley Stevenson. That's a name. John Hoopenthal. Christian Childress, who also pledged at the $10. Thanks so much. Thank you. Amafi. Fergus Maxwell. Jabril Shank, uh, Teddy, there was more than I thought this week, Gavin uh, Ruddledge, Maxwell Harkness, uh, and Nick Mettler. So thanks so much to all of you. Hope you are all enjoying those bonus episodes. That's the one plug for the week. the other plug, uh, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I see the stats, I know that you are. I see you right now listening on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Scroll down to the very bottom. Give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the last plug is merch. If you guys like the uh, the art that uh, tre- horror artist uh, based out of Toronto, Trevor Henderson, did for the show for us, you can get that put on basically anything that you want. A mug, a shirt a pillow, a hoodie, a notebook, whatever you can think of, you can probably put it on something. Uh, The link to that will be in the description um, of this episode, as well as can be found at sleezoidspodcast.com. And all right, that's it. That's the intro. It is is getting long. Welcome back. Uh, As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome back. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us on our supersized three-hour epic <laughs> episode on Steven Seagal with uh, reigning champion of guesting on the show, Andrew Law from the Bunta Vista Socialist Club podcast, where we talked about Above the Law, the very first movie that Steven Seagal ever starred in and the mysterious origins of how he got a movie career, which sounds like it was uh, on some doctored um, footage that he, uh, test footage that he sent to Warner Brothers as well as a bet by yeah. a, a Hollywood movie agent. And of uh, course and we the, follow- uh, the mystery of where his hairline went and then came back. So that was, that was yes. something too. And and uh, he he may or may not have formerly been a CIA agent, but the CIA will not tell you. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> we we paired that with uh, his, his uh, unhinged solo directorial outing on Deadly Ground, which I cannot describe to you in a log <laughs> line. But if you if you want three hours of us breaking down Steven Seagal his origins and his eventual downfall a little bit. Uh, we, we talked about it uh, two weeks ago. That's not any podcast listener of choice. That was the free episode. But last week we did your guys's voted episode, which by the way, the, the polls are now open on the Patreon for all of the patrons. Make sure you go in and vote because every, um, every other month we do an episode that you guys vote on the double feature. And we did the one that you previously voted on last week, which was uh, Sam Peckinpah's bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia from 1974, um, as well as William Friedkin's Sorcerer from 1977. We went dark. We had some very sweaty uh, psychological journeys through Latin America by foreigners, and uh, it was a very good pairing by patron Riley Pelling, and it was a big episode too. But moving on to uh, this week, going off a little bit more of our Steven Seagal episode where we kind of talked about, you know, uh, you know, a, a lesser respected auteur in their own way. Uh, we've been building towards this episode for a while because we did mm-hmm. an episode many months ago that a lot of the patrons really loved where we talked about a little movie called Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme and also a, a movie uh, called Nemesis, which we watched it and it felt like we were watching like a direct-to-video version of like a Hong Kong action movie that predates The Matrix to a yeah. lot of the sort of uh, elements that it was doing about sort of like the the, the flesh and the future. And, and just and constant so, gunfire. Just nothing but just ammo. Gunfire and sunglasses yeah. and stuntmen flying away from explosions and, and craziness. And that sent me down a little bit of a journey of the guy who made those films, a man named Albert Pyun. So we wanted to talk about some more Albert Pyun. In order to do that, we had on a returning guest from the Important Cinema Club podcast. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. We have Will Sloan, but coming with him this week, we also have his co-host, Justin DeClue, who actually wrote the book on Albert Pion, the book that exists out That's there. Right. I haven't picked it up myself, but I, after doing the 20 films that I just did, I feel like I'm going to be right after we finish recording this. Um, but Justin and Will, how are you guys doing? I'm doing good. Happy to be here. Uh, two podcasts enter, one podcast leaves. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> that is how it works. Some of you might remember Will from uh, coming on. He brought on one of the craziest episodes we've done where we talked about the 1930s cl- uh, pre-code classic, The Black Cat, 
which he oh, then yeah. brought on with a horror porn called Widow Blue from the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> and that episode actually is kind of hard to find for people because the letterboxed oh, uh, yeah. entry for Widow Blue was actually taken down. Uh, even uh, though I hope, I hope it's going to be restored away. now. Those yeah. Sensorious mods for God's sake. <laughs> well, you know, you guys call yourselves the sleezoids. So I really wanted to, to put it to the test that week. You know, absolutely. Yeah. It's still the only, the only person who has brought a porno on the show. <laughs> yeah. um, so is that a challenge we, we, out there, Josh? <laughs> I'm, I'm putting it forth. Anyone, uh, anyone who's got a recommendation for a good genre porn movie, Lay it on us. <laughs> I could have been a lot harder on you guys. I could have brought forced entry. I could have brought the taming of Rebecca, but I went with the fun <laughs> horror porn. Oh man. oh man. All right. Well, welcome, welcome, uh, boys. Uh, we're talking about Albert Pion this week, and I, uh, I wasn't really sure which which ones to kind of do, but one of the ones that really stood out to me when I was going through his movies solo, just one after the another chronologically was um, Radioactive Dreams, and it was also the one that Justin named his book after. So I knew that that was one that we had to talk about this week. Um, and we're also going to be talking about um, Doll Man. Um, but maybe, maybe Justin, could you give us a, a very brief overview on these two films and, and maybe at the things that might uh, join them together in Albert Pion's filmography? So Radioactive Dream was Albert's second feature film that he was able to direct. And what's notable about his career is that he came from nothing. He had no connections. He was essentially born in Hawaii and he wanted to make movies. He wrote a script, did storyboards, went with his friends to L.A., somehow got Sword and the Sorcerer off the ground. Sword and the Sorcerer was a massive hit. So it sounds like he could do whatever he wanted with his second film. And the second film was Radioactive Dreams, which was a gumshoe-style detective story mixed in with 80s post-apocalyptic stuff, yeah. uh, starring uh, everyone's favorite charisma dynamo, John Stockwell, and everyone's favorite comedy star, Michael Dudikoff, the American ninja himself. <laughs> so Radioactive Dreams did not do well. And that kind of let Albert down a bit of a spiral where he finally ended up connecting with Canon Films. He made a bunch of films. A lot of people know them, stuff like Captain America. But eventually Canon ran out of money and Albert was kind of on the rocks again. And that's when Full Moon comes into the picture. I'm sure you guys have talked about Full Moon, Charles Band's company. And Albert- Yeah, we did uh, We did Castle Freak, I think is the main one that mm, we did from, yeah. from mm-hmm. them. But but Full, Full Moon is like that classic, like they greenlit stuff off the post in the concept and they were like go <laughs> love it love it and Albert throughout his entire career has always been a guy that when he approaches a company he goes I can make two movies for the price of one and that's essentially what he did with Stallman and Arcade which he said I'm gonna shoot them back to back on the same location that's how we're gonna do it and so I mean I don't want to you know spoil the story of the making of these movies but he did Dollman, then he started Arcade and he left Arcade before it was done and he went to go shoot Nemesis instead. And Arcade had to be <laughs> wow. cobbled together by uh, some of the actors and some of the producers into the final form we know it today. Okay, was that due to just like he had a, was a Nemesis more of like a passion project for him? I think he was just being offered more money and gotcha. I'm sure within the Charles Band kind of uh, sphere, 
uh, Albert was like, I can't do this. Like they wanted, to, they wanted to do a full CGI thing. And the story behind Arcade is that the original past of CG looked exactly like Tron, and the Disney lawyers somehow saw it and actually sent a cease and desist, and they oh, had to wow. redo all of a large sequence of Arcade. <laughs> oh wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Incredible, yeah. Ar- Arcade's a, a weird one. One of the weirder ones going through his um, filmography, because and, and, and you know there there are there's some there's some strange ones like Alien from LA is in there. Omega <laughs> Doom with Rutger Hauer. We'll we'll probably get into uh, you know tangentially bringing up a couple of. Uh, the kind of films that he was into because in the 80s he was very much into that sort of music video thing like vicious lips the one about the 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 girl band trying to make a concert on an alien planet but the whole movie <laughs> is just them stuck in the spaceship on the way there just well, arguing <laughs> what's funny about vicious lips is that was also a charles Barron produced film and that's an incomplete film because essentially after radioactive dreams did so poorly Albert said, all right, you know what? I'm just going to make a movie on my own in a warehouse. I'm going to shoot it in like, I think it was like five or seven days. And they didn't quite do it, even though like the cast is filled with um, people that he knew, people that he worked with early in his career, like uh, Brick Bardo is named after his mentor who stars in pictures like Ray Dennis Steckler's um, The Thrill Killers. That's where the Bardo name comes from. And he was one of the producers on Vicious Lips. And Vicious Lips came out much uh, further after Radioactive Dreams. That's because it sat in a vault and people are like, I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) Which is why uh, Dangerously Close was able to come out before Vicious Lips was released. So is is, is that why there's a character named Brick Bardo in like... 10 of his films (laughs) it's because uh his pal uh joseph bardo was one of the first people he met when he moved to la and this is not confirmed but looking at his filmography i get the sense that albert may have worked in pornography because that's where brick bardo was working at around the time albert would have arrived in la and started working on commercials and whatever gigs he could get wow interesting I need I to see one of those Albert, Albert Pianos. Pian. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he directed any, but he was probably like a grip or something like that on them. But I've never seen him talk about that. Incredible. All right. Well, yeah. So, so we're going to be talking about Radioactive Dreams, his kind of like uh, de- post-apocalyptic detective rock opera style film. And we're going to be talking about um, Doll Man, which has the uh, basic premise of you know like an alien dirty harry arrives on yeah. earth and he's like 12 inches tall <laughs> pretty yeah when he gets and on earth and then he just kind of like stands around and does nothing for 60 <laughs> yeah for a lot of it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so those those are the kinds of movies we're going to be talking about today and i think we're going to start off here chronologically we're going to start with uh radioactive dreams All right, we are talking uh, Radioactive Dreams, the 1985 uh, post-apocalyptic... science fiction detective thriller 80s comedy pop, rock you, opera yeah. just everything that you can imagine it is neo noir neo noir yeah. yep. oh yeah it's essentially uh, albert Pune's version of streets of fire a movie that he loves that it 
is completely understandable. We covered Streets yeah. of Fire on the show, actually with our friend Andrew, who we just talked to about Steven Seagal. Streets of Fire is one of the movies that we, we talked about it on the show, and since we talked about it, I probably watched it like three or four times. Um, I, I, I keep going back to just the, the kind of vibe that Walter Hill got in that sort of film where it it's it, it feels kind of lost between the 50s and the 80s in this weird like childish fantasy reality where you know despite the fact that you know it, it feels like a, a kid's version of what's cool playing with action figures <laughs> uh, it turns me into a kid briefly i kind of buy into it when i watch that film and very much watching Radioactive Dreams, I I think in my review I even said this is probably a film exclusively for people who think that Streets of Fire is the best movie. Um, and very <laughs> luckily for me, I am one of those people. And yeah, that's a, that is a, a very good way to drop us into Radioactive Dreams, which is written directed by Albert Pion. Obviously, it stars. Um, John Stockwell, who we've, I think, only previously talked about uh, in Christine. Yeah. He's kind of like the main friend there. And uh, Michael He would Dukoff, go on to be a director. He did stuff like uh, Touristas and um, one of those surfing movies, Blue Something. Blue Crush <laughs> okay. with uh, uh, yeah, Kate something like Bosworth. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, he he seemed to get really into like the like the teen movie thing. Obviously, he was also in 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 Top Gun as well. Mm-hmm, right. And I think he he wrote another pun, uh, Dangerously Close. Yeah, and he co-starred uh, in Dangerously Close as well. Yeah, yeah. So it was very very interesting um, watching Pyun try and like kind of like make him. Uh, you know, just a guy I kind of knew vaguely from Top Gun and Christine and watch him be in kind of like the movie star roles of Pyun films. Yeah. Um, I always like John Stockwell because it makes me think that uh, he and Keith Gordon both starred in Christine as the jock and the nerd. And John Stockwell went off to direct jock movies like Blue Crush, also Into the Blue. Keith Gordon <laughs> went to go direct nerd movies like, you know, uh, Perfect Clear and The Singing Detective produced by Mel Gibson. <laughs> I, I also just want to say that I value this movie greatly for showing a new side of Michael Dudikoff. You know, we're all familiar with Michael Dudikoff from his meat-headed action roles. Well, maybe we're not all familiar, you know. Who knows how many people <laughs> watch those movies anymore. But I don't know, to watch him do a soft shoe... To watch him be the laurel to John Stockwell's Hardy, um, I don't know. It, it, it's it's so delightful. 1985 was kind of a tipping year for uh, Michael Dudikoff because he acted in American Ninja and Radioactive Dreams the same year. So those are like two paths he could have gone down. And before Radioactive Dreams, Michael Dudikoff was mostly just like a joker. Like he was on a TV show called Star of the Family uh, with Brian Dennehy. And he was like the comedic kind of uh, character in that show. But after American Ninja, it's just like stone faced Michael Dudikoff for the rest of his career. God, he okay. could have been the new Cary Grant. Wouldn't that have been great? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw this movie when Justin showed it at the Royal Cinema in Toronto and he showed it, he and Peter Kaplowski showed it on a 35 millimeter print. And I wasn't all that familiar with Albert Pyun's work. I'd seen like Captain America and maybe one or two others. And like when I was a kid, when I was a budding cinephile, you'd go on sites like badmovies.org and Stomp Tokyo or whatever the popular cult sites were. And his name kept coming up as one of the worst filmmakers. Like he Our was, generation's Ed Wood. Exactly. He was somebody yeah. who like- oh, man. 
even the people who liked bad movies had contempt for this guy. No cult following at all. And I think a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that the movie that uh, everyone had seen was Captain America, which is right. not his not his finest hour. That's actually the only one that I had heard about before we took a, a deep dive. And, and, you know, it has that reputation. So mm-hmm. when I saw that we were diving into... Albert Pioneer's the guy that did uh, Captain America. I wasn't quite sure. And then, you know, we watched Nemesis and Cyborg and I was blown away. So that definitely was a, uh, I don't know, an off movie for him. <laughs> well, I remember when Justin said he was writing a book on Albert Pion. Like, I don't know exactly what I thought, but there was probably a part of me that kind of thought, wow, okay. I mean, that's, what? That's, that's, that's Well, I know it's, it's a foolish, it's a foolish thing in retrospect now that I'm more familiar with his work, but it's, it's like, it seemed like, wow, you're really, planting your flag somewhere that nobody has ever planted their flag before, you know, good (laughs) luck with that. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, I don't know, having read Justin's book and having seen more of his movies, like what's great about Albert Pion is, um, I don't know, something I think I've learned from Justin is that he was always working under these impossible conditions and under those conditions, he was always trying. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, there are a lot of direct to video guys who don't try or just phone it in. And, you know, sometimes Pyun would make something that was like really fun and distinctive, like Mean Guns or Knights or Deceit, you know, very mm. strange um, and creative movies. And other times the movies wouldn't be so good, but they would always have at least an interesting idea or an interesting mm-hmm. mood. Like, uh, I, not to get off on too big a tangent, but there's this movie called Crazy Six which is not one of his most beloved films, but it's it's like, it's set in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet union. And it's kind of like a dystopian world where it's become like a crime world. And it stars Rob Lowe, Mario Van Peebles, Ice-T and Burt Reynolds, all of whom do not share any screen time together. Uh, they were all (laughs) recorded separately. And, uh, so that creates like a weird disjointed viewing experience, but the whole thing is done in this bizarre dreamlike late period Abel Ferreira style. Um, and it's, and it's done in a uh, 2.35 widescreen um, by his cinematographer, which is incredible because this movie was only meant to be seen in pan and scan. Nobody would ever watch this movie. And well, I interviewed his cinematographer, George Muradian uh, for the book that I wrote. And he said, we shot everything assuming it would play in theaters or hoping it would play in theaters and spoiler alert it never did <laughs> yeah it's it's tragic because you look at a movie yep. like crazy six or blast and like they're doing good things with the compositions you know some of them are quite visually beautiful given the circumstances i mean that cinematographer like i was shocked to learn that you know he worked with vittorio Storaro on dick tracy he worked on <laughs> escape from new york he was on the blues brothers and he brought oh, wow. all of this knowledge to these pictures where it was like essentially a family, like a lot of the same actors repeated. You mentioned John Stockwell. Like there was an early period where John Stockwell could have been part of the Pyun family, but then he kind of went off on his own way. But like all this team, every time they come to these projects, you get the sense that they're like, we're going to give it our all. This is going to be the best thing that we can do. And oftentimes circumstances and also Albert Pyun's need to continually create kind of makes them stumble a little bit. I mean, Albert Pyun is very Jess Franco-ish in that you know, him making movies is not because he needs to make money. Like, he's not like, oh, I'm going to cash out this time. It's like, I got to right. make this movie to make money so I can make the next movie. Even if it like self-destructs the, all the projects by doing that. Yeah, it does yeah. feel like he just has a constant drive to create and just mm-hmm. uh, show people what's inside his head. Um, exactly. Whether that be to a fault or not. And I mean, some of the kind of, you know, 
the the low budget qualities of his film does have a particular charm to them, and uh, and he always finds oh, a yeah. way to just just bring his personality through in every single film yeah. that I've seen. I've only seen about seven or eight, but I mean every single one, um, aside from maybe Alien from L.A., I really enjoyed. So. There's a lot of oh. peeling in that too. The visual style, that's very true. similar. You know, well, I saw that a <laughs> lot of people yeah, were like, I, "Well, that, that's just it." Even when I don't like something that he's making, I always am sort of, uh, you know, ch- definitely as Jamie put it, kind of charmed by it. He definitely was like this once in a generation. You know, he's he's operating in in a, in a trashy mode, but you know, he took all of these genre movie cliches that he very clearly loved and was passionate about, and he spit them back out always in just like. You know, the most charming, the dorkiest, uh, <laughs> yeah. sometimes the most. Um, he is lovably som- dorky. Well, and, and, and to the point where on a production level, you know, sometimes they were so chopped up, they almost take on this like surreal experimental <laughs> quality, Yeah, for sure. you know, d- d- even even though that there is, you know, always a clear love for the craft and the feelings and sort of like the fun that he's making. And one of our patrons in the Discord, I think, summed him up perfectly, that he was a man that you gave him a couple nickels in a weekend to film something. And instead of being like, how am I going to make this movie? Oh, my God. He was like, OK, how many? can i make um <laughs> yeah. that, that was that was the, the 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 kind of stance that 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 he took and it, it from what i understand it all came from the success of his first film the sword and the sorcerer which is his really only box office hit which is like him doing a medieval fantasy movie trying to like cash in on you know the wake of like uh, Borman's Excalibur and Conan and the Beastmaster right. and everything like that. And so he does his own kind of like low budget version of it, but it, it's not even just charm. There's also always a sense of ambition to it. He always wants to do a movie that clearly is outside, outside of his price range. And you can always, uh, I feel like see that you can see the seams of that in oh, yeah. a lot of the films that he makes, but it never bothers me. It, it's always something where it's like, you know, he always, even when he, he shoots too high, you know, there's something in the adventurous tone that he goes for that he always nails. And I mean, shit, that, that movie has a dude firing a triple broadsword crossbow, <laughs> literally three crossbow, three broadswords instead of arrows. Amazing. And it's in- just, it's insane. In the wake of Sword of Sorcerer, um, a lot of people stepped up and said, oh, that I was the real director of this film, like the producer of the picture <laughs> or the cinematographer. They were like, oh, Albert Prince didn't do anything on this. This was all us. This is our success. And it's like, look at the guy's career. It obviously wasn't you guys. Yeah. And he's continued to make those kind of movies since Sword of the Sorcerer. Yeah, that can, yeah, uh, that's yeah actually I mean, like, 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 like Radioactive Dreams has some stuff that's just as crazy as Sword of mm-hmm. the Sorcerer in it. Yeah, that's and actually a big blind spot uh, for me is the is sorcerer. Um, so does that that one has all his same kind of uh, like punisms oh, basically? Everything like, opens it'd be with impossible a long to say he opening didn't do crawl, it. jumps through a bunch of different time periods within the first fifteen minutes. You're like, why am I seeing like children <laughs> growing into adults and now they're they're different adults? That is like a pun classic. Him trying Definitely. to stuff too much storytelling in the beginning of a movie. And you're like, no, <laughs> yeah, Albert, like what are you doing? Just three decades in the first five minutes. Exactly. That's definitely a yeah. pun. <laughs> and uh, Radioactive Dreams is also him continuing his like reaching for the sc- stars because it's one that the Bond company took over. Uh, supposedly near the end of production and in post-production, which if people don't know, Bond companies come in when um, you don't make days. It doesn't look like you're going to finish the film. So the insurance you have is like, all right, we're taking over and we're finishing the film for you. Damn. Okay. Yeah. 
But so supposedly it, 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 it's, it's, it's funny because I watching the film, I don't know that I would have known that. <laughs> well, supposedly, so uh, I was interviewed for a documentary about Pyun uh, that people are making uh, long going. So I don't know when it's actually going to come out. But as I was stepping out of the interview room, uh, the editor of Radioactive Dreams was coming in and I had so many questions for him. <laughs> and he said that the Bond company only came in during post-production, that they did run oh. out of money during the shoot because one of the big like investors pulled out at the last second. So th mm. that's why like when Pune talks about, it, he's like, I wanted a big musical number at the end. And now it's just kind of like, just, they're just doing a shuffle. It, they're just doing a shuffle <laughs> essentially. And that's like all that he could get out. And what's interesting about radioactive dreams is that there are two radically different versions on the Japanese laser disc. It's a completely different cut with like completely different story directions and character beats. Oh wow! So interesting. Uh, so I've, how, I've only how does seen. It, it's, it's worse, right? The Japanese version isn't as good. Yeah, I don't like it as much. Michael Dudikoff's character is more of like a jackass. Um, one mm. of the women characters dies okay. in the movie at the end uh, what? instead oh, of wow. living. Yeah, there's like a lot. Of, there's like different musical cues. Different stuff happens. Like characters talk well, that's more. Something, that's something I noticed with this one was that the uh, like you just said that the one guy is more of a. More of a like a, was it like an asshole or is he more of just like yeah, a jackass Michael Dudikoff. In this? Okay, yeah, Cause, cause was more one, like what are you doing to me? While he's more innocent in the final version, right? I was just gonna say that because these guys play like they're like children that grew into adults but never really mm. grew up, which makes sense because they've been you know in this vault for so many years. Uh, but I just <laughs> Wait, love did that we these... set up the movie. Are people like, what, yeah, what yeah. is this movie about? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say that. For, then for, I'll, for, I'll go for, into for, my little spiel here. For, for anyone who hasn't seen uh, Radioactive Dreams. Uh, uh, it is very uh, broadly, it kind of opens on this nuclear war breaking out in the year 1996. And in in 80s fashion and in Pyun fashion, who loves Streets of Fire so much, he literally made like a like a sequel knockoff, like not that many years ago. Um, it, it, it opens on like, you know, this this the synth drums and this sort of like, uh, you know, pop rock uh, playing while these two kids are being shoved into a shelter by their fathers. And those two kids are Philip Chandler, played by John Stockwell, and Marlo Hammer, played by Michael Dudikoff. Yes, that is Philip and Marlo. They take as many times uh, uh, to say each other's names on screen as they possibly can. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, just wearing it right on his sleeve and either way when this nuclear war hits they are thrown into this shelter and you know this well, incredible you miss a very 80s important rock. part which is they're thrown in the shelter by one of cinema's great actors George Kennedy George Kennedy playing <laughs> one gun of dads, which is insane a labor of love for George Kennedy <laughs> <laughs> the one day he shot on the movie <laughs> So so good. I was just watching uh, Modern Modern Romance the other day, and he showed up in that, and I I couldn't help but think of this movie for some yeah, reason. Yeah, Albert Brooks was at. making the movie Radioactive Dreams in Modern Romance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, all I could think about was the scene where he asked them to pull up the Hulk footage. <laughs> he's just like <laughs> he's like, wait, that's not running. That's Hulk screaming. <laughs> But um, yeah, so he, they they throw these kids in the shelter to this 80s rock ballad that's playing and they spend 15 years inside this bomb shelter with 1940s food rashes and uh, newspaper boy styled clothing and nothing but pulp detective novels. Uh, and also he went um, Zack Snyder's Justice League mode Academy Ratio for this opening scene. Oh, that's and right. in black and white as well. <laughs> and black and white. Yeah, that's right. 
Oh, I love and when they finally. Um, I th- how many years passed? I think it's like fifteen years or something. It, it's like that. it's, it's yeah. fifteen years. So the movie is yeah. supposed to take place in two thousand and ten. And so, like after all these years, uh, George Kennedy, uh, like their fathers, have abandoned them, and they decide, all right, it's time to go out. They have like this souped-up car uh, with no top, <laughs> and the doors open. Uh, of the silo that they're in. And when they open, it actually like the screen widens out as it happens. And color yes. comes into the frame. <laughs> That's an artist right there. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. And, and, um, uh, John Stockwell is doing like, you know, this sort of like noir voiceover. Of, this is going to be a yarn about me and my pal Marlowe. Mm-hmm. He's got like the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And yeah, it, it, it's very adorable because you know, it, it, it cuts to 15 years later and they're all grown up, but they are, as Jamie kind of put it, they're just still, they're still kids. They're, they're obviously stunted yeah. by this time that they spent reading, you know, just uh private eye novels. And all they do is call each other like slick dicks yeah, <laughs> and like wear and fedoras. They, and and it's how like, they see the world too. Like, like as soon as that vault opens, they say something like, uh, "There's nothing but lovesick dolls out there." Like they're about to find romance and love and adventure. And the first thing that happens is like this this crazy gang of raiders just come up and start destroying their car and stuff. Like there's there's no real uh, downtime at all. As soon as they're out of the vault, it just gets crazy right away. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so as, as soon as they go out, they go into the world of like literally like Mad Max, and there's like <laughs> yeah. uh, mutant cannibals like chasing down babes that yeah. the guys have to then you know uh, you know they they have to step up and they have to do what's right and they have to help the girl out. And I love when they go up to the one girl, Miles Archer, I think is her name in the film, and uh, he he opens the door for her like a gentleman and. It, it, they're, they're in the Mad Max universe. She's like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, she does not understand. And they're doing like shtick. They're like, hey, how's it going? Uh, they're like doing like soft shoe. Like at one point, Michael Dukoff <laughs> yes. like fights with one of them like on the car and he's like dancing and doing like backflips and stuff like that. Just not treating it seriously when they're in this like 80s post-apocalyptic wasteland fighting punks on like motorcycles that all have like red wigs on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah the, charming the, the because bald it feels female like biker a, gang in red wigs just like hunting them down like road warrior style <laughs> and they're just two kids playing detectives it's such a weird uh mix of movies happening i well uh, it's charming because it feels like just a lot of stuff that albert Pune liked without mm-hmm. like necessarily thinking about how it all fit together something of the aesthetic of you know, combining noirish stuff with eighties punk stuff feels a bit like, you know, Tim Burton's Batman or, uh, Brazil. Um, but I mean, I think those movies are probably a little bit more, uh, rigorous in their aesthetic than this one is this one. I think that Pune's approach to it was probably that like aesthetically, you know, the eighties and, um, you know, the public's consciousness of noir are two stylistic extremes, but one of them, due to, to the distance from when it happened, like the uh, noirs, there's like an innocence that can be viewed there, even though that, you know, the text doesn't, um, that doesn't what it, what it actually means, but like Pulp Detective, it's like, ah, gee whiz. While the yeah, 80s, yes. in 85, that's like dark and, you know, it's edgy, even though that looking at it now, both of those things are innocent. So bringing them together is actually fascinating to watch in 2021. And, and there's also, also like, monster movie stuff. Like there's like mm, a giant monster yeah. and there's, you <laughs> yeah. know, space people etc <laughs> i also like the kind of uh like 80s 
comedy, like sex comedy stuff they throw in there every once in a while. Like one of the raiders actually gets on the windshield and presses her boobs up against the windshield, and <laughs> yeah. then and then licks. Uh, it's either Phil or Marlo. I can't remember which one, but licks him, and 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 he's just having a time. He's like, I don't know what to feel about this at all. I've just been, you know, I've grown up on these fifties noir novels. Like, what is going on? Well, well here? yeah. Well, the, the, that's what's so funny is that there's there's a sense of like very childish innocence to the way that Albert Pion's like playing with genre. Yeah. But then he will throw in things like, well, these these kids are, you know, kind of being brought into this new terrible apocalyptic world filled with swearing and murder and rape and cannibalism and mutations and and all of these things so that you get you get this weird kind of clashing on that it feels like a kids movie in a lot of different ways and then you'll get like very vulgar gags like what Jamie just brought up and then later there's really like bleak subject matter brought up and and obviously also these you know these two kids who have been stuck in a shelter and went through puberty in a shelter obviously waking up to all of the the hot girls around them in the apocalypse <laughs> which is also a thing that is always in uh, Albert Pion's films. There's always just some uh, very, very tough, very beautiful women that, uh, you know, uh, engage in the same world that that they do. I was thinking a little bit of um, Down Twisted, which was one of the Pions that I that I watched, which was kind of like his attempt at kind of like a like a Miami Vice kind of thing that he was going for, but he morphs into this like strange, like globe trotting conspiracy adventure movie about like Amer- Central American jungle artifacts and things like that. But there, he, he always finds a way. And what's that? Forgive me. I can't remember the name. What's that one that he did where the one girl is meant to be playing like James Bond's like daughter or something. Oh, you're thinking of um, the amazing. Oh, what what is it? I had the title right in front of me because she's a gymnast and the yes, James Bond, a real life of. gymnast and the James Bond character is played by Lance Henriksen. It's Spitfire from oh, 1995. Awesome. Yeah, Spitfire. Love yeah, that's Henriksen. that's the. That's 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 right. So his the the women in his movies are always you know they 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 play heavy heavy roles and if anything in here they're more knowing about the toughness of the world than you know yeah. the the two main. They're guys way tougher here. than the boys. That's for damn sure. <laughs> I mean, the whole film is also the boys realizing that the world is a dark place and like the yes. big emotional crux is that one of them wants to kind of give up and the other one is like, oh, you know, it's all, um, you know, doomed. What's the point in keep in keeping on going? And it's just trying to figure out like a middle ground to approach the world with, you know, mm. uh, a dance in your step, which is what happens at the end of the movie. <laughs> right. Yes. yes. It's the only life we yes. got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and 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 weirdly enough, I end up, you know, I I do end up kind of feeling that through line um, in this film and in in the way that he pursues it. It's it's obviously very, um, let's say it's, it's it's very simple. It's very corny in its in its own kind of way, but it's it's done with so much. Uh, sincerity and kind of cheap passion that I I, I do buy into it, um, and this one even more so than 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 other pians. But I, I especially love too just how he really did throw everything that he could at the wall with this one. Because again, we we've gotten into you know it's it's a it's it's a noir story, and these you know innocent childish noir dudes kind of end up in a Mad Max world and all of the things that you get out of that. But he doesn't stop there, as Will said. You know, there's giant radio active rat monsters that come out of the sewers. One of my favorite details is the uh, l- the little children dressed like Tony Montana. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they say fuck every the other time. word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. 
<laughs> and yeah, so w- watching like a little nine year old come out and be like, bitch, if you ever slap me in the fucking face, you're wasted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you'll see the kids too. They'll, they'll kind of have smirks as they're doing the lines. You know that they're just having an absolute blast, be- having full permission to just say fuck all the time. It's so funny. I loved yeah. the Guilty Pleasures musical number. It felt like the yeah. Frankie oh, so Goes good. to Hollywood bit in Body Double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. A moment in the movie where uh, the characters enter this big underground chamber. So I should point out that like we're explaining this like it's Mad Max, and it is, but the uh, storyline of the film is like a microcosm for uh, Albert Prince's career, which it uh, starts in a bunker, opens up, you're like, I can't believe this amazing world we're going to go into. And then 10 minutes <laughs> later, no, you're in a bunker again, and you're not getting out for the rest of the movie. <laughs> it's just them kicking his ass, yeah. Oh, but God, doesn't it look so great? I mean, I'm oh, such a does. sucker for the aesthetic that he creates with all that smoke and all that neon and all that and blue oh, yeah. teal. What I, so guys, I, w- I wish you could have seen this movie on 35 millimeter. Oh, the colors are like, ah, my eyes. I, I, uh, yeah, the, the, the only transfer that's available looks like this washed out VHS copy that's put on a DVD. That's what it looks like. Yeah, it's from a German DVD and uh, it's not very colorful. But like what Will was talking about, the sequence, the guilty pleasure sequence is the characters walk into this big room. There's a party going on. You hear the music blasting as you've always heard it. And then Sue Sad, the lead singer of the song that you're hearing, and guilty pleasures leans into frame and starts singing the song so you're like oh we're in a musical number now yeah, yeah. and it's directly into the camera and what's interesting yeah, too it's not just like one you know it's not the opening scene and then we just see the action sequence it constantly cuts back to the band and her looking right into the camera so it really does mm-hmm. feel for the full four and a half minutes like a music video and it even ends the scene ends with her uh doing the final crescendo you know the the song's over the beat is over and she just kind of does a, a pose into the camera and then it fades mm. back into the story so it, yeah. it's guilty pleasures yeah exactly <laughs> what a song too <laughs> yeah, oh my exactly. god it's so good the vocal performance is honestly awesome it's got a lot of high notes and she's like just wailing it's really good well all this the two sad songs in the movie, and we can talk a little bit about the music as well, which is like the backbone of this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, her band, um, Tony Ripperetti, was in it, and he would go on to compose every score of every Albert Pune film up until today. Like, oh, he wow. worked with them every single time, yeah. And so, if you like that pop rock uh, kind of music, it continued for the rest of Albert's career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it it can't be overstated either that, you know, again, it's like an establishing shot of like Mm -hmm. the gang's hideout that turns in and it just pans over and you think that you're in the film and then all of a sudden, bam, she's in your face. Isn't it like a high shot too? So like you wouldn't even expect someone to step into frame? (laughs) It makes no sense. Where is she standing? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, when Hewn is at his best, I think he definitely feels like he's just kind of playing and he's uh, doing anything he wants. I mean, a a movie like Mean Guns is another example of something where it's just he's like throwing a lot of different stylistic ideas at the screen and seeing what fits like like mm-hmm. why not have a musical number you know it's my mm-hmm. movie i can do whatever i want i mean <laughs> mean guns again it's like you know what let's make it an all mambo soundtrack 
And yeah. right. we'll also let uh, the audience know that we know it's Mambo by having Christopher Lambert go, mm, what's this Mambo music? I'd like a CD music, please. <laughs> it's like it's a direct-to-video yes. action movie. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. Why not have fun? You've got nothing to lose. And Mean Guns is also one that I remember when it came out, people were like, oh, there's no squibs in the movie because like everyone's firing endless right. guns, but nothing is going off. And it's because they shot it in a prison that was about to open. They had a couple of days. <laughs> they used almost all, <laughs> like only a of? couple of lights and they just went at it. And that's why the movie is the way it is. And when you know that, you're like, oh, that's even better. <laughs> so is this also the sequence where, I can't remember if it's Phil or Marlo, but uh, Rusty takes him into that blue lit room where they're going to like have sex. And he's really, you know, nervous, but kind of like, oh my God, I'm going to yeah, make love to a woman. And then, uh, and then the gang comes and kind of, you know, ambushes him and, and all that. That's that's the beginning of this this sequence, correct? Yeah, yeah. Th- that that okay. scene is so funny because because he's like, "Don't you want to kiss me first? And she's like tying cuffs on him and shit. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's like, "This is escalating really quickly here." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 um, something we kind of skipped over a little bit is that um, uh, Miles, the girl that they saved from the mutants uh, at the beginning, she steals one of their guns, and while she's stealing um, Marlo's gun, she accidentally drops her keys, which is the the keys to the very last nuke, the only <laughs> nuke that didn't get launched in the war that started them at the very beginning of the film, where they're being put into the shelter. So they are two guys who never experienced what the post-nuke world looked like, wandering into this Mad Max meets Streets of Fire, uh, crazy fantasy, terrible world where everyone is raping and killing each other. (laughs) And they now have the only keys to the one remaining (laughs) nuke. So every (laughs) gang, basically, that exists in this universe starts hunting down these two dorks in fedoras <laughs> want that who power have yeah who who have the uh you know the, the capability of deciding to blow up any rival gang so they start running into people like yes rusty a girl named rusty mars <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, who seduces phil in order to give him up to what are essentially like these weird, like mutant cannibal gangster dudes. One played by Norbert Weiser from Schindler's list. (laughs) Norbert Weiser is an Albert Pune regular. I think he's one of the actors who worked with him the most. You interviewed him, right? Justin, I did interview him in the book. Yeah. And uh, he had a great experience working on every Albert movie. Did he, did he have anything interesting to say about working on uh, radioactive dreams? Uh, he said he was just brought in. It was a great experience. Albert uh, allowed him to kind of experiment. They worked on the characters together. The Norbert Wisner scene, he plays one of the cannibal that when John Stockwell is tied to the table, and it's really creepy because all the music drops out. We're like, oh, now it's like a neorealist sequence. <laughs> As yeah. like he's about to be tortured. There is no fun to be had here. The movie's getting real. right yeah and then and then and then it will cut to like the hooded lizard looking people and the giant radioactive rat like fighting the children Um, meanwhile the entire vibe is like this eighth this 80s like synth fantasy noir thing that's very childish again you're 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 getting things that like rub up against each other and you think that they would get kind of 
uh, nonsensical, but weirdly enough, it just, as it goes on, it starts to make more sense to me, or maybe I just gave up and I just let <laughs> it make sense to me. I'm not really mm. sure, but, uh, but also partially too, there's a part where they're like running through the city in their underwear and it looks like they're running through like the Blade Runner market. Yeah. And yeah. there's like, one <laughs> part where they're passing a, a couple and they're having sex and it looks like one of the guys is wearing like a minotaur head or something like that. Like <laughs> it's, right. it gets really wild just randomly and like almost in the I background, you'll just see the crazy underwear shit. for like they're in their underwear for the entire second act of the movie <laughs> yes <laughs> pretty much they're just running that's hilarious too that that the fact that there are heroes are like our noir detective heroes and the entire time they just spend running away from the bad guys like please don't kill me uh and then they have one moment that's kind of uh kind of cool you know where the fog comes in in the alleyway and they're in their full 50s detective uniform and it's like the one time they get to use some of those cool 50s uh, dialogue like hey dame you're just nothing but trouble that kind of thing to yeah but that's when they've gone too dark Right, it's like, and the soundtrack is and they also did next to nothing, which I find funny too. They're acting (laughs) like super cool. They got their full getup on, but they haven't really done anything except run away this entire time. I think they scare away some children, yeah, or like shoot the gun out of their hands. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Their character progression is is more funny than like legitimately cool, but in a very in a very pun and and good way. I I mean, they're. Mm -hmm. I think that's the point. It's they're kind of uh, naive, and even at by the end when they feel maybe they've grown up, I think that we're supposed to still see that they're pretty much the same. <laughs> they're just kind of living a little bit delusional. Yeah, well, and, anything, well, and the end uh, lesson of the film is like, oh no, stick to your delusional beliefs. You'll be happier that way. Don't right. let the world harden you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It, it, the, the, the movie is definitely about not, because I mean, I think they say it like right before they leave too, is that I think Marlowe looks over a Phil and he's just like, you know, whatever happens out there, I don't want us to, to change. And it's meant to be, mm-hmm. you know, more of this emotional idea of like, you know, I don't want us to turn into, you know, the kind of bad people who do bad things just to survive in this kind of world. And it's meant yeah. to be sort of like this more sweet idea of the of, of maintaining their um you know the being good people and they mm. they when they're running through all of this you know uh gang warfare that they're seeing on the streets and the, and the the energy of the music is very similar to streets of fire not in just in terms of that kind of like new wave 80s thing that it's doing but also the music very much is meant to capture kind of like the broad feelings of the characters. Like it's literally like saying things that they're feeling in the songs while also creating this kind of like unreal space. That's all like, you know, too many fog machines and neon colors. That's clearly where like half the budget. Yeah. And it's constantly Um, dangerous, but constantly fun. Like I, I, mm -hmm. it's weird that, you know, they're, they're on the run the entire time, but I never found myself too, like uh tensed up or anything i didn't find it like i didn't i honestly didn't think that too many bad things were going to happen it just didn't seem to have that tone it has a fun tone a lot of the time i um, think yeah the whole even movie even though again they're yeah. being chased and gunned down <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly I think the whole movie could be viewed as like a metaphor for Albert Pyun's career, like coming into Hollywood. He came with his friends and he's like, right. is it going to, is this going to change us? Like, are we going to harden? Is this going to be like, are we going to be different people when we come out of this? And I think that mm-hmm. throughout his career, he always tried to keep that ethos of like, oh no, you know, you have to come fun. You have to come happy, not mercenary right. because you know, you can't let the world change you. You have to be who you are. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's so funny how, you know, again, it, it, the, the way that it will develop some of these ideas that these characters are feeling and, and like that is obviously through like this very, very, um, you know, 
corny dramatic beats like as jamie was putting it like the uh the bit where they you know get to stand silhouetted in the neon fog and they come over and you know they it's right after they make the decision that we can't ever let these freaks like blow up the world again because they they've they have decided they're not going to trust anyone anymore because every person they trust uh tries to feed them to cannibals or murder them (laughs) or you know in, in some various way that that has happened every single time that they have you know just listened to you know what a pretty girl said to them um and the one girl rusty you know she has like songs where she's like feeling you know kind of like you know sad about it there's one song that's like about her not being able to like look at herself in the mirror but then the gangster the the vulgar gangster children i think try to kill her and that's when they appear it's bam their silhouette and the song is like like a white knight riding on a breathless horse these two men <laughs> showed up <laughs> and 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 phil uh is is so uh upset with her for trying to feed her to a cannibal i think she puts it i'm sorry about trying to feed you in the meat locker and and yeah and and but but you know they're like you know we're not playing the sap no more you know this is not you know we're not letting this world get to us we are going to stop all of you and then meanwhile she gets like a little bit of a monologue about you know how she spent 15 years in a world of like murder and rape and she's not going to apologize to them yeah and like you guys just got here (laughs) <laughs> like you don't understand yeah. the circumstances whatsoever. And now they're telling her off and all of that. And I mean, I get that, you know, Phil would be upset, of course, but you know, they don't take any time to consider why she's in the circumstances that she's in. And that is a good moment for her character to be able to just like tell them outright, like this yeah. is, I've been dealing this, with this for a decade now. And, and meanwhile, all of this is happening while John Stockwell, you know, he's lighting up a Siggy, the huge bass drum and guitar solos are kicking in. And they're, they're, they're singing about, you know, their, their, their hearts and their feelings while they go on to what is in sort of like the climactic set piece where they, they end up at these robed lizard people who are the people who are, you know, running a vast majority of these gangs. They find out that they're kind of in charge of the child gangsters and are the ones at war with the Miles character, who is the girl who dropped the keys to them in the first place and is, you know, kind of at war with these, again, lizard people. (laughs) Um, And it turns out that those lizard people, you won't believe this, they are their dads. And it's so funny. The shot of the lizard mask being, like, ripped off and you just see George Kennedy. (laughs) And he still has the teeth, too, for a moment. He still has, like, the alien teeth in his mouth. Boys! <laughs> By which time, any reasonable person would have completely forgotten that George Kennedy was in this movie. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. So funny. And what's, I love that. what's I love really that, great uh, about that reveal is that we learn that it's not even their dads. They were criminals that kidnapped them when yes. the bombs were going off. <laughs> right. Yeah, which is which is which is even even funnier and and there there is a little bit of kind of like a you know uh, how it's incorporating this idea of this you know these kids trying to adjust to this you know this this very hard terrible world where all these things are happening and not wanting it to change them and they they literally look 
at their dads and eventually basically, uh, you know, who again are revealed to just be these criminals who kidnap them and then watch them die. It's a very like kind of kill your elders <laughs> kind of moment for uh, these two. And, 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 and he still the calls one him kid pops after he dies too. Yeah. So yeah well, that, that's, what's funny is the one Marlowe like really, you know, wants to find their dads who, as he sees it kind of like saved them from the war. And the other one is like, dude, they're just like weirdos who just left us to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They never and came George back. Kennedy, after Marlowe goes up to him and he's like, you know, holding him and George Kennedy's dying. George Kennedy's last words are like, get on with your life, kid. And he even tries to have this romantic moment after he passes away and he goes, thanks, Pop. So long. Yeah, thanks, Pop. And it's yeah. like, dude, I don't think you're in the right movie here. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> But but that that sequence involves like uh, slow mo grenade launchers being fired at giant uh, radioactive rats that are eating the child gangsters in slow motion, all like, while uh, the amazing song "When Lightning Strikes" plays, which is like a six yes. minute like "When Lightning Strikes." Yeah, yeah, it. It, oh, it, it feels like like the the first time Pyun got to do what he would eventually do in Nemesis, which is mm-hmm. like straight up steel, like some some Hong Kong slow motion action destruction with sparks and smoke and shattered glass and overexposed lights just everywhere. It's actually very very chaotic, and I wish that I could see it on a better copy because I bet you it's a more impressive on the film well, print. We should point out that uh, the Hong Kong style didn't really exist as far as gunfighting goes because uh, uh, Rare Active Dreams was made in 1985. John Woo's A Better Tomorrow would come out in 1986. Ah, so who ripped off who is what you're saying. Exactly. This always always happens with Pyun. When we we talked about Nemesis, we were surprised to find out that that came out so much before The Matrix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When we were like, all of the stuff about merging Hong Kong action with like American cyborg Terminator kind of stuff. And trench coats and sunglasses and machine guns, like all of it. And and, and just stuntmen and everything. Yeah, we were so shocked. But this this is a frequent thing with Pyon where he just merges so many things together by happenstance. He ends up creating something (laughs) that, you know, uh, someone would actually, you know, uh, as Will put it, maybe more rigorously aestheticize. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, it was like Mean Guns. When I saw it, I'm like, oh, he's clearly ripping off Johnny Toe's The Mission. And I looked and I'm like, wait a minute. The Mission (laughs) came out after. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the influence goes both ways because Pyun, of course, you know, after loving the Wuxia films, made his own American Wuxia film, which is Knights. But I Uh, should point out, it feels so much like True Hark's The Blade. The Blade came out after Knights. (laughs) 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 So... If you oh, want to know where Pion cinema is headed, just take a look yeah. at whatever Pyun's doing at that moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is wild. Yeah, but so yeah, that, he, that, that, fin- that final set piece does feel like Albert Pyun doing a little bit of John um, Woo that he would eventually do in Nemesis. Lots of mm-hmm. like close-ups of eyes and muzzle flashes and collapsing mm-hmm. stunt people, in hila- but just in hilarious costumes. I mean, people uh, are probably <laughs> listening to this podcast being like, no, he's ripping off Sam Peckinpah. It's like, yeah, yeah, we know, but <laughs> yeah, this, that's true. no one had done it like in this poppy way before yes. yeah. kind of yeah 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 I, I would i would say i mean i would say that yeah jo- i mean john woo would have been definitely inspired by what <laughs> peck and pa was oh, doing yeah, definitely. um so yeah but yeah it's, it's very interesting to see it in like this weird 80s pop universe for sure mm-hmm. um and then yeah the, the dads just tell them you know who fucking cares uh, the past yeah, the, the past go do your own thing <laughs> 
And, then, and it's so uh, funny that that's supposed to be the emotional crux of the movie is just George Kennedy being like, shut up. Who cares? Oh, I love it. I love that. After all this, it's like, it doesn't matter, man. <laughs> like, come on. We're, we're not, we, we, we you, we're not going to give you anything. Like go on with your life. Yeah. 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 Go do that. Yeah, post and, and, and shuffle, it, baby. Yeah. yeah and to be fair, that that's what they do, man. The, the, the music kicks back in. They look at all of the various mutants and cannibals and, and gangsters um, and he looks at his friend and he, he referred to it earlier on in the film when they were in the bunker that, you know, his, they, they taught themselves this dancing and it was meant to be sort of like this idea, this sort of like magic thing. And so to try to cheer his friend up, he says, you know, teach me how to do that dance that you did. And as he does the dance, he learns it. It starts to infect everyone else. And I, I literally my jaw dropped when it does that very classic like end of a studio comedy um <laughs> like crane shot of oh, everyone no, like the uniting the MGM uh, uh Minnelli crane shot just pulling yeah. out of like everyone <laughs> yes. dancing <laughs> yes da, da, that's exactly da, 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 what it was like. and it's so yeah. I love the like what how it looks too because you have their noir detective outfits on because right now they're in that full getup, but everyone surrounding them is in the 80s apocalyptic aesthetic so it's <laughs> just such, it's so funny to watch them in the spotlight doing this kind of like weird shuffle while all these crazy characters are surrounding them. It's it's fantastic. And then to end it with the, uh, you know, that classic crane shot is uh, kind of panning out. But but and with the dialogue of, uh, you know, in a tight jam, a nuclear missile might just come in handy because <laughs> yeah. they end up actually <laughs> keeping the keys just in case, yeah. which is we'll so have funny. neoliberal policies and that's how we'll run this post-apocalyptic <laughs> future. <laughs> Justin, just would you case, say that baby. this scene is a metaphor for Albert Pyun's career overall? <laughs> you know, like a non-conformist <laughs> dancing his way around uh, the crushing Hollywood system. Yeah, and he's got like a gun in his hand and he's like, if anybody messes with you, I'm taking you out. <laughs> He'll press the button, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he unites the, the post-nuke world with a, with a little shuffle. That's and it's, right. it's, it's honestly, it's honestly kind of a beautiful end to, you know, Pyun just saying, you know what, I want to make a sci-fi noir about nuclear apocalypse and the old world being destroyed and replaced by this terrible new one filled with swearing <laughs> and rape and murder and cannibalism and translating that in terms of his stylistic vision into something about as romantic and innocent as hopeful as possible as about could, just yeah. dorky kids who love genre stories just maintaining their goodness <laughs> not being <laughs> changed by the world or letting it corrupt them in any way just being who they are and i would say that's absolutely a metaphor or a for for pion as an artist well, the next yep. film, Dollman, then I guess is a metaphor for his career trajectory where he'd be kept getting more and more marginalized and more marginalized until he, bar- he barely existed in the industry at all. Just a tiny little man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that's that's about that. That's about right. I mean, I guess we'll wrap it up here for Radioactive Dreams. We'll go into uh, reductive rating round, which for Will, you, Will and Justin. So we remove all the words and all the nuance and we reduce the movie between a number between one and five. But also uh, it's become kind of like closing statements. If there was any lines or scenes or songs, we didn't hit anything you wanted to bring up before we move on. This is where we do it. But yeah, I mean, Radioactive Dreams for me, it gets a very solid uh, four for me because this is the pion that. I mean, again, as I said, this is, I think, a movie exclusively for people who I think really like Streets of Fire. It's basically Pyun doing his so own. All the version good people out there. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I would say, you know, if there's anyone who finds that movie, um, you know, corny or messy, you know, I, I think that Pion's version is just more of those things. Um, but I do think that Pion, again, was a once in a generation kind of trash artist who took all of these things that he loved and he rendered them in a very disarmingly dorky and charming and cheap and ambitious way that, you know, I still get a lot out of this. And weirdly enough, of the Pions that I've seen, this is probably the one that, despite the fact that as we went over, the basic sort of emotional idea is, you know, very juvenile in a way. It is one of the ones that I that I feel the most because I think it's so stylistically rendered. I think that he threw everything here. He did noir and Western and rock opera and it's 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 similar to streets of fire it's you know it's so simple in terms of its design and it's lost somewhere between that 50s and 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 80s uh that sort of 50s vibe but like the looks and the sounds and the darkness of the 80s um obviously here we probably should say uh rip to um Jim Steinman too recently passed passed away, but clearly his music was such an inspiration on all of the original music that they did for this as well, and it's it's all merged with Pion's very childish sense of cool and yes. sexy and genre fatalism that he kind of has. It feels barely held together in a way, but the ambition far exceeds everything, and there's so much joy and passion to you know all of the cliche genre style that he you know kind of trades in and. You know, if, if there was a, a cliche genre style that is close to my heart, it would be the one that features, you know, 80s pop rock and fog machines and neon lighting. Um, yeah. So I got to I got to give it to Pion four for me. Uh, yeah. Four out of five for me as well. This is um, once again, I've only seen about seven or eight Pion films, but every single movie I've seen, even the one I didn't particularly enjoy as much, uh, Alien from L.A., still, he always finds a way of, of uh, bringing his kind of dorky comedy f- uh, forward, and just his personality always shines through in every movie. Um, I can tell that he showed up to set every day and really came with ideas and was uh, completely, you know, just in love with film to a point that he was going to focus and get those ideas on the screen, regardless of the fact that he had basically no budget at all half the time. Well, yeah, he, 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 he won't be stopped. I mean, we, we've been talking about it a little bit in the Discord because we've kind of been following him on Facebook and stuff. He's still trying to make films today despite right. having MS and Alzheimer's at the same time. Yeah, he said. I heard there was like a story where he was editing things, and he said that he had to re-edit it like fifty times because he kept like deleting it accidentally or something like that. And it's just, you know, it, but that also shows. It's very sad, but it shows just the man's passion. Like he can't be stopped. He's going to make films. He's going to create. And I, I just have a, a deep love for that. So, uh, yeah, this is a four out of five. Just, just love the '80s aesthetic, apocalyptic aesthetic mixed with the '50s noir. I think that's genius. It really works. Um, and just watching these naive child adults go through this this crazy world was endless fun. So yeah, four out of five. Do you want to check it, Will? Yeah, uh, yeah four out of five. Don't have much to add to what you guys said. I think it's, uh, if I were making the case for Pyun's talent, if I were making the, if I were trying to sell someone on him, I think this is the one that has the mood, has the images, has the ideas, has the spirit. 
Yeah. Yeah. Radioactive Dreams for me is also an easy four out of five. Uh, I'm tempted to go "Ah, five out of five, but it is, again, when you watch it, kind of compromise and it's charming in that way. That is the charm to Pyun. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing this movie in an Alamo draft house in Austin because I was moving, uh, helping a friend move. We had driven across the country. We got in Austin on the day that Trump was elected president and we (laughs) sat in a theater and watched Radioactive Dreams. And I was like, wow, I liked Albert Pyun before, but this is really opening my eyes. The color, the music I'm just finding it so enveloping as we go into our own apocalypse and I think like Will said that if you wanted to show somebody you know what Albert Pune is up to what his drive is what his creative passions him aiming for something that is not particularly popular but he likes it and that's why he wants to bring it to screen I think Radioactive Dreams and then you double bill it with Nemesis like if people don't like those movies they probably won't like Albert Pune's filmography Uh, yeah yeah I would agree with that for sure Definitely, definitely. And I mean, I got to see that 35 millimeter print because I I mean, I I, I think that this kind of has like a lucid dream world quality to it. And I haven't even seen it in all its full colors and, you know, all God, I I can't imagine. I can't. There's got to be a company like Vinegar Syndrome just like waiting to put it out. Well, Justin, (laughs) before we recorded, you were saying that one of the problems is people don't really know who owns the movie, right? Yeah, that's right. That um, oh, okay. uh, Albert uh, funded the films through a lot of independent arms, which is why, like, you know, half the budget of Radioactive Dreams fell away. So nobody really knows who owns it, which is why it, it's difficult for these films to get released. And also, they don't have that big of fan followings. Like, Radioactive Dreams does not have, like, radioactive uh, dream heads out there being like, put the movie out. Like something like, you know, right. Night of the Creeps back when it wasn't on DVD. Well, we're, we're, we're going to start that. We're going to yes. start oh, that right let's now. Let's fight the good we, fight. We, <laughs> we, 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 we have a, an army ready. Uh, harass every single <laughs> yes. uh, boutique Blu-ray label, please. <laughs> we want it on Blu-ray. And, let's get it and done. And tell them... Tell them that you want to see Albert Pion's rock opera noir Mad Max um, on Blu-ray and that we and want 4K it 4K gloriness. Oh, it would be beautiful. That and 4K. Night, oh please. God. Those are the two I want in widescreen, high definition. Why not all 40 movies? Let's go. Oh, yes. 40 set. movies. Big <laughs> hey, box hey, I'm already fighting edition. the good fight. I bought Crazy Six and Blast on Blu-ray when they were put out, letting people know oh that, uh, you know, there, there's Blast. an audience out there. <laughs> That's killer. Blast, man. Is, is that that's the that's his diehard one, right? Yeah, that's his die his very pool. generic diehard, which I always try to um, you know, if people are interested in it, I go, the hero doesn't talk for like forty minutes in the movie. <laughs> He's just doing his thing. <laughs> Blast is hilarious because it's about a terrorist attack at su- at the Summer Olympics, but he clearly filmed it at like, I don't know, just like a community center, just swimming some sh- pool, yeah. shitty pool somewhere. <laughs> and there are maybe five people in the whole movie, and there's no sense whatsoever that the Olympics are going on. <laughs> and one of them yeah. is Rooker Hauer, who brought um, a very particular uh, character angle on the person that he's playing. A little problematic, yeah, he might say. Yeah, well, yeah he, 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 he tries to play no, like a like a Native American or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he Steven Seagal's it. Yep, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Amazing. All right, well, I think that'll wrap it up for Radioactive Dreams, and we are going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about Doll Man. That's about the size of it. Who? It's the fucking doll man. Who else? Hey, you want to 
Dollman. 13 inches with an attitude. All right, we are back and we are talking Dollman, the 1991 American uh, science fiction action, not really a comedy, but kind of a comedy. Yeah, there's a lot of good comedy beats. Uh, directed by Albert Pion and starring uh, Tim Thomerson as uh, Brick Bardot, who is uh, a, a name that very constantly appears in the Albert Pion universe. We didn't mention it, but he actually, that character is also in Radioactive Dreams very briefly. I think he's Miles Archer's friend who kind of try, tries to help them escape the cannibals, but then betrays them like two seconds later. Oh. And it's meant to be like a twist moment. I'm like, I, I, I never trusted this guy in the first place. <laughs> yeah. um but here brick bardo is um we we will say that he is the the alien dirty harry slash paul kersey of a planet called arteros um we we see him in the opening scene taking a hostage situation that is happening at a sci-fi laundromat. And I, I love Albert Pion's version of like a, like a, like a sci-fi setting, which is just like a lot of shadowy concrete rooms and like TV static distortion. That's mostly it. It's That's probably all we what had. He That's all we could afford. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, so he, he, he tries to make do with like a, the cheapest possible, like, you know, Blade Runner thing of kind of like futuristic, but very still dilapidated. Um, and it's dudes in sunglasses and trench coats holding, you know, like a futuristic gun in a low budget, you know, kind of cityscape. That's basically it. And this opening scene is so crazy to me because it is essentially just structurally. It's the, you know, it's the fascist cop movie where he shows up and, Gets you know, he's the, the guy who's going to, yeah, he's going to get the job done, but he does it in like the weirdest way possible where they're just like, hey, what are you doing here? You're already suspended, presumably for some sort of police brutality that he did. You're already suspended. Why are you even showing up at this hostage situation at this laundromat that <laughs> looks like it's just in someone's basement? Because he's the um, best. And, well, and, and he's like, I'm going to. I'm going to throw it in with my whites. He's like, I'm just going to go. It's a Steven yeah. Seagal. Yeah, like he's I'm just go doing in. my laundry. I'm not on a case or anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes down there and this criminal, he has decided to take all of the overweight women for some reason who are hanging out at the <laughs> laundromat and he ties them all together with rope around him as kind of like a human shield. And there's very, uh, there's jokes about them being like, pick on someone your own size. It's like shit. Like <laughs> yeah, it's so juvenile, <laughs> but I mean, I just love Pion for that shit. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so weird watching him show up and, uh, the mayor is there being like, Hey, I don't want any dead fat girls on the news brick. Uh, and then he goes down there and <laughs> some little kid watches him pull out his gun. It's my like, he's favorite like, wow. line. <laughs> he's like, wow, that's the most powerful gun in the universe. And he's like, that's right, fat boy. <laughs> <laughs> and we should point out, this is very important, uh, that Brick Bardo has a gun that is so powerful that when he shoots it, it blows people in half. <laughs> yes, this is, this, is, this is the gun that he has. And he... he when I first watched this, I didn't quite believe him when he said it, but the line that he says is, I'm going to blow a hole through these fat ladies and there's going to be lots of guts everywhere. (laughs) And you're just like, this is the 
this is like the this guy, is the, this hero. Is like the hero guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what's amazing um, too is even like in this beginning, it establishes it, but throughout the entire film, this guy is never in any like real danger. The confidence on this man, every time he just takes out that gat, he's ready to go. It's it's and hilarious. You pointed that this is not very comedic, but Tim Thomerson did get his start as a stand-up, and you know who his bestie is? David Letterman. Oh wow! Damn, <laughs> he showed up on the David Letterman show a lot. I mean, he's definitely delivering these lines with intended comedy for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there can't be he can't be at, uh, not self-aware about this the way that he's delivering these like super no, macho. but, but uh, well, and I would I would say I don't think that it's not um, comedy. I would say it's just very mean. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. very needlessly mean. Where he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the guts of these fat ladies everywhere. Yeah, and you're almost they, like they get shocked so sc- rather than actually find it like totally humorous. I know I know what you mean. Yeah, and that and well, and and the point of it is that they get so, you know, they get so upset hearing that that the hostages literally just faint and pin him down, the criminal. Yes, <laughs> right, and right. Like that, like that's that's his strategy. His strategy is to just threaten to blow these ladies up everywhere in front of him, so that they then uh, collapse and the weight of them takes down the criminal who has you know used them as a human shield. <laughs> <laughs> And like that's it. I was like, "What's Hell going?" And then, and then later, it's it said that two of the women suffered cardiac arrest. And he's just like, "Yeah, whatever. No one died. <laughs> <laughs> Got the job done." And uh, I should point out that while this has real kind of like Blade Runner vibes, which is a Charles Band, the producer of this film, staple, the original art for Doll Man is just a ripoff of the Incredible Shrinking Man. It's like a guy with like a a pin fighting a spider. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> this is Albert Pugh through and through because like this noir stuff is right up his alley. I'm sure he's not credited as a screenwriter, but I feel like he did a draft of this script. Justin, what was yeah. Albert Pugh's relationship with Charles Band? Like, did they get along? Did he have a lot of creative freedom? So from what I've been able to discover, supposedly Pugh burned Charles Band on the project uh, Vicious Lips, which uh, Charles Band was one of the executive producers on, and he ended up uh, distributing it, not in North America, but in other parts of the world. And I think that Pune probably just approached him, and from every you know uh, inkling that I get from people that worked with him, he was just such a charismatic guy that clearly believed in his work, and that when he told uh, Charles Band, who was running Full Moon at Full Blast in the early 90s, hey, I can give you two movies, Dollman and Arcade, whatever you want me to do, I'll shoot them back to back, basically in the same warehouse and in the same like uh, gravel pit, and two <laughs> movies for the price of one. Come on, why not give it to me? And the problem is, Dollman is a special effects movie, and <laughs> no, it's Albert Pune admits himself <laughs> that uh, we didn't plan for it. We just kind of run and gunned it, <laughs> like didn't plan out any mats or how many shots there would be. So y- the end result is what it is. Well, there's well, one I, good yeah, mat in this movie. One good mat shot of like the uh, planet at the beginning of the movie that we see yeah. a couple times. It's got like uh, a cool space kind of downtown area. Yeah, I but you would that. think that um, we haven't gotten to the part yet, but the movie's called Doll Man because uh, Tim Thomerson is actually only 13 inches with an <laughs> attitude when he comes to Planet Earth. And, you know, when you have like, you know, big things and little things on screen, you would think there would be mats like so both actors could share the frame. It happens very rarely in this film. And when it does, it is sloppy AF. <laughs> like you can yeah. see the mat line on screen. 
There's a lot of yes, forced perspective. Yes. There's a scene towards the end of the movie that I especially like, you know, during the big action climax where like you're seeing it from Tim Thomerson's point of view where the camera is roaming around the gravel pit, like close to the ground, almost like a Sam Raimi evil dead style. And it goes towards this, this big pipe. Well, it's okay. It's a small pipe. It's supposed to be a small pipe. And then it cuts to Thomerson, like from an extreme low angle running up to like a gigantic tunnel or something yeah. like that. And that's supposed to be the tiny pipe that he's going to go love in. Love it. Love it. I, I love the ingenuity <laughs> of it. I like how it's not at all convincing, but like you just, you just kind of go along with it. I do like uh, the, the shots that they have when he meets the floating head uh gangster character when they're Mm -hmm. still in the on the space planet because um it has all these really awesome giant like concrete pillars in the background it almost looks like the same place that they shot nemesis in a way it is the same place they shot nemesis oh it is well there you go (laughs) (laughs) there you go do you know where that is because i it honestly looks kind of otherworldly i I don't know what that if i check my notes i'm sure it doesn't exist anymore it's all condos now because it was in a place in la that uh albert pune had discovered and they're like we're just gonna shoot here all the time this looks awesome oh okay it it is funny It, it is like this very uh like big for like it, it looks like half like western desert, half garbage dump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It and, looks and like if you're a crew member, you're gonna trip, fall, and get stabbed on like a steel rod sticking out of the ground. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that is like I mean like that that scene in general because like the, the the like again we we've established that we have we have alien dirty Harry, and what they set up also is that there's this there's this dude who is essentially a floating head on a flying dinner plate. Sprug <laughs> whose is name, his name. Whose name is, yeah, Sprug or Sprug. I actually yeah. like and the way they did him. I like that, like, they have a shot of kind of, like, the prosthetic version of him so that you can actually see him floating, and then they do a, a zoom in with his just kind <laughs> they of They do a close-up where, he's, where, the, where the actor is actually going to say the lines yeah. so that you can't see his body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I did like it. Um, I, I like that they still established that kind of prosthetic shot. It... it was pretty cool looking honestly yeah well and i i liked this scene too because it's just so it's the only like unhinged action scene in the movie yeah where, like sprug sprug sets up he's just like look i don't have a body anymore because you've destroyed my body in the you know the two or three previous encounters we had every time we've encountered each other you've blown off a leg or an arm and now i'm just a head and so you know sets up a little bit of backstory but then one of the henchmen like steals his gun and he he gets to do that little magnet trick where he has a magnet on his hand that brings the gun back over to him and he literally explodes oh, yeah. each like, and every single one of dummy, these henchmen. And it cuts to the dummy just like exploding like blood and guts all over the place. And you get the classic guy laying on the ground. They dug a hole. He put his legs in it and then they covered it up so it looks like only half his body. And he's like, yeah. oh, 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 like coughing up blood. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, like I like okay. I was like that's like some it, it's really like some seventies and eighties like explosive dummy work. And we should let people this, know like, if you're hearing this, you're like, this movie. sounds amazing. That's the only time it happens in the movie. <laughs> Nothing like this. That was what again. shocked me. That was what shocked me as I was like, how did this not come back up in the final set piece? Yeah, anyway. we ran out of money. That's why. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that's how, definitely that's exactly is how. how you feel once you get to the finale, which we'll 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 wait on, of course. But uh mm-hmm. it, it as the movie rolls along it it starts to kind of it loses its steam a little bit 
I, well, yeah, because after because after that he lands, you know, he he chases Sprug uh, in a you know uh, this very cheap looking uh, spaceship chase that they do, where they both at, go through some sort of like uh, some sort of I can't remember exactly what they use. They use some sort of sci fi phrase. Energy like they, band they, they pa- is what they use. They, they, the energy band. That's what it is. <laughs> they pass through the energy band and ended up on Earth. And on Earth, both of them are tiny. They are literally the size of of little tiny action figure which is where you get the title from and i like that the and head is actually like like we already have the 13 inch doll man but the head is only like two inches so just to is. really imagine that is very funny i always forget that part i just think that they're on a, another planet that's just smaller than earth i'm like why do they have to go through an energy band to get small <laughs> yeah. i'll admit that my heart and always then, sinks in a movie like this when like the first 20 minutes are in some cool like alien planet yeah, in the future right. world and then and you're all revved up for that and then like like masters of the universe is like this it's like oh mm-hmm. yeah yeah they're they're back on they're on modern day earth now we don't have the money to stay on the future world yeah. will can't you commit to following the uh troubles of a young hispanic single mother who's trying to get more help at her ravaged community <laughs> i mean look i do love albert Pune as like By getting in more police like, kitchen <laughs> sink dramas um <laughs> Yeah, I mean that 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 is what's weird is that ultimately like what we've described is like a very fun movie that suddenly is like like cheaper than any of the Death Wish sequels uh, <laughs> version of that. Way <laughs> just with, cheaper. Way just, just cheaper. with just with just with like a very tiny man, mm-hmm. and and that is like actually it. He just he ends up in the Bronx, New York, number one baby, etc. Um, and then there's just all these shots of just dirty streets and the gangsters and the liquor stores and the rundown buildings and the garbage everywhere. And it's like, you know, alien, dirty, Harry, he's going to clean up these streets, uh, uh because Jack, really. Jackie Earl Haley is trying to, in, in what has to be one of his earliest roles. No, well, Jackie Earl Haley was a kid actor. That's where he was most famous. He was in the and bad so, news bears. I think Yep, uh, he was one of the main guys in the bad. He's the older kid in the bad news bears that they get on the team. So interesting. So this is him during I, I don't his, know like, that I, I don't know that I saw things. him. I I've seen bad news bears, but I didn't remember that he's in that. Does he still look the same? Uh, I mean, he's young. I think he must be like 15 in that movie. And that he was Damn. basically like one of those kid actors. He was also in the Peter Yates movie, uh, breaking away as like a kid. And so like doll man is a wow. classic, like, um, you know, last place you usually land as a kid actor. Who's now old. You're like, I guess I'm in these straight to video movies. <laughs> right <laughs> incredible well it, it was very weird to see because he i mean he has a very distinctive look to him and mm-hmm. he i think of any of the actors in the movie he's trying the hardest oh man <laughs> he is like committing he's like this will be my oscar reel <laughs> like every time he's on screen <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's he, he's this bronx gangster named braxton red who just like oozes people in broad daylight and is trying to be like a, and and he he's the only one who gets like a like a dramatic like death moment near the end and everything mm-hmm. like that too it's like yeah. it's it's very weird that he he is the character who kind of has the most life but he is meant to be obviously like the character who um debbie who is this young hispanic single mother who's the one who comes across the doll man she is you know being antagonized by jackie earl haley and his gang um you know and and is very upset at the idea that her child might grow up and you know uh get a nickname and uh, get some friends and be part of Jackie Earl Haley's gang terrorizing the Bronx. And she's very upset about this. So what we need 
is the little tiny doll man to um, <laughs> hang around kinda... in her apartment and not do very much for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very weird um, movie. Gotta say, like just structurally, like the, the second act of this movie is just so a, a, a lot of just wheel spinning, mm-hmm. but like that also it, you're, you're wondering like it's wheel spinning to get to where exactly. Yeah, like really who's sure. really the villain of this film? What is the goal of this picture? I also <laughs> feel like it yeah. doesn't quite have the pace that you want from a movie like this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would agree with that. I do say, I do think that there is um, something that's endlessly entertaining about just how weird every circumstance is just by him being 13 inches tall. Like as I'm watching, like, you know, all of the neighborhood come into their apartment at one time and just like circle around this little spaceship where this 13 inch man is, is living. And they're all like, Ooh, look at this. Look at that. Like there's just a lot of really, it's, it, it's not very deep, but there, it, it's just very strange. And I found that entertaining. I think it's just like the weirdness quality of it all. Yeah. It's, general, it's definitely, it's definitely an oddity. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. And the, the 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 concept itself, I found, you know, entertaining enough to kind of get me through um, the second act, and also just like the again the the weird performances and the weird uh, way that they don't even try to like do the. The, the shrinking man aspect oh, no, of they it, don't like in all. a way that makes sense. Not too much. I mean, yeah. that's charitable. I think they do kind of try. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really do anything, which is always a bummer where you're like, all right, what are you going to do as what kind of situations could you be thrown in? Yeah. Basically the one idea they landed on was that his gun that can blow up people, you know, on his planet on earth, it just works like a normal gun. Which is like, and that makes it <laughs> I mean, once yeah. again, I think I said it at the beginning, but this guy is like indestructible. His confidence in his himself is is unparalleled. Like he he enters every single uh, fight in knowing that he's going to win. Like I don't think there's ever a moment in this movie where he's in any real danger. So it feels uh, like they spent all their capital on the gags, like the large women as human shields <laughs> and the, the <laughs> magnet gun, and then they're like, "Yeah, oh, that's the two ideas we have. All right, we pad out the rest of the movie." Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, a, a good a good portion of what they try to do after is, you know, there there's there's a couple moments like when when they first bring him home and he's like shooting the cockroaches and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who are like these giant bugs to him and and stuff, but it, but it is one of those things where like you could tell if they had the money to like sell that a cockroach feels big to him that it would be yeah you know, i like wanted it, like it, a it, big it, practical like cockroach puppet that's like towering over tim yeah. thomerson that he has to like swat and, out and, and then he shoots it in half mobile. and like yeah, green and ooze comes out yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> turn into a little starship troopers yeah, kind of moment exactly for him, like <laughs> we never uh, had a bronx that. kitchen yeah but but instead it, it stays very grounded in just like kind of like the 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 apartments and the city and jackie earl haley eventually comes across um you know like the the sprug the tiny little floating head who tells him that he's you know gonna give him a bomb and immediately jackie earl haley's character uh braxton who's you know he's he's one of the lower tier uh members of the gang from like death wish three is what he feels like his his imagination is hey i can blow up the east side with that (laughs) yeah um and i think that that i mean i could be wrong because by the time we hit the final set piece i was kind of like I don't really know exactly what it is that Braxton is trying to do. Well, what happens film. is Braxton gets shot by um, Dollman, and then he gets Sprug to heal him, 
yeah. with his magical right. powers, and then he disgustingly just crushes Skrug <laughs> under yeah. his foot. Yes. I really liked Which that beat. I thought that that was hilarious, because you have this two-inch head that's doing the classic, like, oh, well, now that you've made the deal with the devil, I am in full control <laughs> of you, and there's nothing you can squash. And then it's just yeah. done, you know? <laughs> yeah. That, I thought, was fucking hilarious. And it's also, um, it worked for me just because... It's the realistic thing to happen. It's like, why would this Braxton guy listen to a two-inch head? <laughs> so, exactly. It's, it's. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> listen, yeah, we can't I, I, pay to do this head anymore on this shoot. <laughs> Just yeah. crush it. <laughs> Just crush me. Yeah, it was the yeah. actor. Yeah, and then and then and then he he shows up at the apartment because he hears about there being another tiny man out there because one of his men is shot by. Um, you know uh the, the the doll man who's when when he saves debbie from his gang and he he like kills one and he injures another one and all of his gang comes back into the base being like there's a there's a tiny little man uh who shot at us and and he's just like okay you guys are just fucking high or drunk or wasted like i don't know what's going on with you guys but then they tell them that the girl brought him back to the apartment and all of the local community is just gathered around him. And the mom, then she's the mom's so upset. She's like, did you tell everyone that we have a tiny spaceman in our house? <laughs> and the little boy is just like, well, what's the point in having like an alien if he can't show it off? You know, and all the little kids are like, look at this little alien man. And we know that he's like the police brutality alien, yeah. which gives it just this weird vibe of all the kids being like, this is a cool guy. Well, I, I like this guy. He's so small. He's also telling them to like fuck off the entire time, too. Like he doesn't even like yeah. the kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's he's also like making dick jokes and stuff like that before like blowing away the um all the all of Braxton's men who show up in his apartment and it's so funny how like bloody the sequence is like in front of the kids and everything like her apartment <laughs> at the end of that sequence is it is a massacre yeah, just there's blood all bodies. over the walls yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like you're welcome Oh, yeah, and, and it's just this little tiny man getting involved in New York gang war. That is literally all this movie is. And Braxton ends up with a bomb. And what I was more confused by is, like, what exactly he was doing with the bomb. And he, he, he kidnaps Debbie. And then there's, you know, the, it leads I to guess. the big final set piece where he, the doll man has to show up and he has to take down the gangsters who are kidnapping and hurting the community and literally trying to explode it with an interdimensional bomb of some <laughs> yeah. sort that do, do we see it uh i think he holds it at the end right before he blows it up okay yeah but it's not it's not it's not like a device that they talk about often to be honest it, they, it, it, it's definitely not used there, there's no like ticking clock suspense quality to the final set piece yeah, <laughs> even the, though i think that that's what's supposed to be happening the introduction to it is when the head meets braxton for the first time and he says uh Something that will rip this dimension a new asshole. No one will fuck with you again. <laughs> and uh, and so I like that. But then the device just kind of becomes something to only work in the beginning and then the end. It's not something that seems like, like you said, a, a, tip, a ticking time bomb or anything like that. Um, I also will say I like the, that the word fuck is used constantly in this movie. Every gangster, it's like every other word <laughs> is fuck. Um, I just thought that was funny. I And I notice it so that much is, that, 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 that is, down, that is so. well it is it is funny because it's always that it's that thing that radioactive dreams had too where it's very clear that the concept for the movie and kind of the tone that peon strikes is is something that feels like it's again it feels very childish or juvenile in kind of a way 
Uh, and right. then the, the people in the movie are actually, you know, like rated R characters. <laughs> yeah, it's just yes, always something exactly. that's just, like, this is a movie with, like, with exploding gore dummies. But at times it feels like you're watching like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something. Um, right. And yeah. that, that that's just always something that, you know, it, it, it's it doesn't always work, but it is something that I find um, entertaining. Again, just watching these yeah, kids. The kid like, feels ooh like he's at a Shazam or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just watching the kid like, ooh and ah, like a tiny little Paul Kersey, just a funny idea, even though I don't mm-hmm. know that that's an, you know, I'm, I'm unsure on how intentional on a writing level. That's exactly what they were going for. Uh, and I will say that I was a little disappointed by the big final showdown yeah it's it's definitely like it undercuts what you expect based on what you had seen before i mean jack earl haley does get his arm blown off but yeah this is where it includes that shot of that that uh was it will did you did you bring it up the bit where he's going through the tiny compound and he's like going through the little tubes and things like that yeah and for me moments like that are what really distinguish this movie i mean i'm not gonna call it i'm not gonna call it so bad it's good because that's a stupid thing to say about a movie but i definitely like if there's anything i like about this movie it's the low budget ingenuity of it yeah yeah because he he they are trying i don't think it's as successful as they kind of hoped it would be but there are moments where you can see that they are trying to be like this is a tiny man with a gun shooting at large men and the bit where he goes through the tube and there's you know there's there's like a rat uh in there uh because albert pyun he loves his giant rats you know Um, i wish the movie was funnier you see a scene like the big climax and you think like let's get some gags let's have some fun with the fact that he's like a really tiny man Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it does this movie take itself in, a bit too seriously. Needle. Definitely, yeah. But there, there is this thing where he is just like there. There are shots of him. I'm not sure how they did it, but there are shots where they try to make the small rocks like look bigger in the frame with Tim Thomerson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is, is 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 that is that actual just set design that they're yeah, doing? Yeah, probably they're making... shooting from like a high angle. They found a big rock Tim Thomerson can stand beside. To make that it makes look it look like, like a little rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One shot I really did enjoy and had a good comedic beat from it was uh, when he attaches himself to the car. I don't know if maybe someone mentioned this already when I cut out, but uh, when he attaches himself to the car and then you have that shot of they just put a doll on the side of the car and had the car just drive. <laughs> that yeah, shit got like me that. going. I thought that was so funny. So I wish there was just more stuff like that uh, throughout mm-hmm. all the action yeah. as well. Yeah, this is, the, the, this is definitely where they try the most. Like I, I also think about that beat where he... Um, uh, he takes out one of the guards on the outside and then he, uh, the, the one dude's calling him over the walkie talkie and he steps on the walkie talkie and Tim Thomerson stepping on like a, like a giant walkie talkie and being like, <laughs> got it going Seagal mode and being like, got it, homie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, so there, there's, there's a, there's a couple little funny moments in there. This is definitely the final set piece. They were definitely trying to get the most like action scenes where you get to see that he is a tiny man killing you know giant uh you know bronx gangsters (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i also did like um when braxton picks up his little pistol briefly and he's just holding it with like (laughs) his his, like thumb and and pointing finger it's like the one of the funniest images ever and then he uses his force to like get it back but the, the brief moment of him picking up the one inch gun i thought was hilarious too 
Yeah, yeah. So there, there's definitely a couple moments in there. I, I guess I just feel like when when you put it all together, it just didn't quite, it doesn't quite have that trajectory of it feels like a tiny man doing an assault on a giant, uh, like, base of some sort. Yeah, uh, not it, as it just, it just it feels could. like, yeah. It, 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 it just feels like they, they kind of had a, you know, small jokes that they kind of came up with and they, you know, they, they, they make an attempt at them and some of them work and some of them don't quite. But, you know, it, it, it does end on a very violent moment where like Jackie Earl Haley is getting his arms blown off and someone saying shit like why don't you pick on someone your own fucking size you pukers <laughs> you know things yeah. like that uh just screaming motherfucker at each other while like firing uzis and things like that jackie picking up like the tiny gun yeah, saying stuff like but, tell me size doesn't count things like that you know that that is the, <laughs> the funniest that that is what uh eventually kind of won me over because i I, <laughs> sure. I was kind of feeling softer on this one than i was on some of the uh, some of the other peons but it did clarify to me that after this final set piece like is all said and done and of, of course it ends on him just doing the magnet thing again yeah <laughs> that he did in the opening set piece where he just magnets his gun back out of jackie earl haley's uh hand and i i love too that there's like this small moment that comes out of nowhere that is meant to be kind of like this, this moral moment where he's like, let me finish this scum. He doesn't deserve to live. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the single mother is like, you know, is, is it just cause your family isn't alive? Is that why you're doing this? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I don't remember a whole lot about, I mean, it didn't, it just didn't, it didn't click with me that that, that, that was a thing that we were pursuing yeah. in the text of the movie that, that, that moment was going to hit. So it doesn't really end up hitting, but then he tries to blow it up and he, <laughs> anyway so it, it takes the moral question completely away from them anyway yeah uh where he just sets off the bomb but then it doesn't actually do that much damage and no, then it really he just go destroys the building that they were inside it seems <laughs> for, the, for the most part <laughs> not the most impressive interdimensional bomb i will say yeah, he said it was gonna blow uh, the dimension a new asshole that's well, what I we should point out <laughs> it would have been huge if it had been on his planet but on planet earth <laughs> that, that, oh you know what that's you know a what? solid point that's a solid point do you know what that's funny that's yeah. a joke i you know what that works <laughs> yeah that's now that i think works. about that that actually does make sense i feel and stupid that, although, that didn't translate to me right away that did not translate to me either <laughs> until right now so yeah he he blows up with a little tiny bomb that was meant to be really big on on their planet and what does tim thomerson end the movie by saying is he says debbie tell me size doesn't count <laughs> we're gonna uh, fuck debbie that's what we're gonna do <laughs> We're going to fuck Debbie. I like well, the, the thing uh, is, Tim Thomerson has shrunk on his home planet in all parts of his body except for one. And that's what they yeah, don't show yeah, you at the end. His ass. <laughs> it's huge. He's a tripod. Yeah. Yeah, I also, the original title of the movie, Tripod. They're like, yeah. we're going to get it. I do like the uh, the silhouette of them on the on like the cement pillars or whatever because his is just clearly like a, a small little doll they placed to to just have the like one foot man. <laughs> one could say a doll man. Yes, yes. <laughs> but 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 do you know what this does have that is a staple for anyone who goes down the rabbit hole of Pion? It becomes a staple of his late career, and I I love it 
every single time it comes up, it is just as much of an Ochoa quality as anything else. It ends on an extended credit scene oh, where they it. show you pictures of the actors and, you know, and, and a lot, and some of them scenes. will actually tell you that the character names, this one doesn't, but some of them in the later ones do. Not just pictures, footage names. often from the movie you just watched. And yeah. it's like a roll call. Yes. Of actors. It's yeah. usually just yes. like all the main beats of the plot redone <laughs> again. Mm. Yes, and, and, and he does it to extend the film by about somewhere between seven to ten minutes yeah. to make the credits longer because this is already like at, what, an 81, 80-minute movie? Uh, so well, to make it... That's the classic full moon thing, too, is that they never had long enough credits, so like the credits move at a crawl. <laughs> as they right. Yeah, and, and, and that has just become a thing that Pyun did a lot. I mean, shit, I, I can't remember if it was Down Twisted or if it was one of the other ones, but it, it did the exact same thing. And it was a 71-minute movie with probably about, between the opening and closing credits, about 12 minutes of credits. <laughs> <laughs> so like this is just a thing that that Pyun would uh, would eventually do and this is one of the this is uh, one of the first ones I saw where he 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 did that and it, it's very funny again yeah he'll just be like here is literally footage from the movie you just saw and here's the actors and that's how I'm going to extend the credits out to get this to you and know even, like a like a full feature length even the opening credits themselves in this movie are very like honestly dull it's just a backdrop of space and then just like white or yellow font of just the <laughs> actors and then it goes doll man and then it starts and it's very it's very <laughs> slow like it did not need to be that slow it's it's a good three minutes like of opening <laughs> sequence and then really this yeah this movie's like 70 minutes long total yep so yep. which i actually appreciate but hey <laughs> you know what in the end the tiny police brutality alien he helped clean up the bronx and that's, that's all right. I mean, he didn't really that's, like <laughs> not not really no. but he tried his best yeah he and, i don't even know if he, he tried also, his best yeah <laughs> <laughs> kind of the jury's out the jury's out you can decide for yourself um <laughs> did the police brutality alien do his best did he actually clean up the bronx questions that we we might not ever know the answer to and pivoting towards reductive rating round on doll man i really don't have much to say other than that i this gets probably the lowest possible three i could give but oh, it wow. gets the three because I, I i do get some entertainment value out of it i would say that it is not it, for me it's just not as sincere or beautiful it, it's as something like radioactive dreams was but it, it is absolutely um an, an, an oddity that only pian probably could have made, made the way that this was made yeah. and it was absolutely worth um watching but i will say even just in comparison to other full moon stuff this is one of the weaker uh full moon um mm. ones that i mean the other only other ones i think i've seen are the Stuart gordon ones i mean yeah there's no comparison Stuart gordon supposedly was on his own uh you know island making those movies compared to what the other people had to deal with but yeah Stuart Stuart gordon um like his like pit in the pendulum for example oh, which is great. like a pretty vicious adaptation of like poe that has to be one of the more like earnest and bleak horror attempts that i saw from him but it's all like gothic period detail and like brutal torture 
And, you know, it's obviously not as good as them, but, you know, it was competing with films, in my estimation, like like Flesh and Blood or like Witchfinder General or The Devils. They literally cast Oliver Reed in the movie in it. And so, you know, like seeing a movie like what Stuart Gordon could do with Full Moon and going like full religious medieval psychosis and sadism. And it actually looks pretty nice. And we talked about Castle Freak, which honestly is was was a great um, film. And so, yeah, I, I would say that Doll Man, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite get to that area um, for me. And I, 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 I can't blame it entirely on Pian. I would imagine some of it is budgetary limitation versus the kind of film that they were kind of make. Like, again, this is a film that needed a special effects budget that they clearly just didn't have. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with keeping that in mind, I think that uh, more so than the little tiny Doll Man, Pian did try <laughs> Oh, definitely. And, and yeah, there's, there's some hilarity at watching, again, uh, the alien Dirty Harry enter the world of, you know, uh, very cheap Death Wish 3 and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and just walk around and, and sit on a shelf for a little while and <laughs> shoot a cockroach. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I would honestly give it the, like, a solid three. I, I never struggled with the film uh, throughout in the sense that I was going to dislike it or anything. I, I All of its weird qualities and, you know, the, the shot of, like, the floating head that's established and then the use of the nemesis setting again I thought was a really smart idea. I really do like that location. Uh, some of the comedic beats worked for me. Others definitely did fall flat, but, like, the beginning where he says he's just going in to do his laundry calls a kid a fatty because he tells him he has the best gun in the universe. Like all that kind of shit. I'm, I love. Just insane. Um, and the fact that it's also 70 minutes, it helps. I think that if this was drawn out, uh, to the 90 minute mark without adding some really good comedic beats, this, I, I would have struggled with it a lot more, but everything moves so quickly because it's so tight that I never found myself bored. Even when things were kind of completely nonsensical. So yeah, I, I I had a really good time with that it. Is, I think if, that is Pion power, is what that is. Yeah, yeah. Pion, I mean, Pion sells this. That's the only way this movie works. But I think if the finale had a more explosive finale with some more creative action beats, uh, I I think I honestly would have maybe even forward this thing because it's just so crazy. Damn. But it just but that's the thing. It it really did uh, struggle because of its budget and um i I just think they needed you know they just needed more money to make that finale really pop and it it doesn't go that far so so yeah i I think it's a solid three it's a good time and it's only 70 minutes so i mean i throw i I throw this i throw this in the same category as like uh when we talked about the 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 jack frost slasher movie okay (laughs) where it's like something something that you know i don't think it's nearly that bad though yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I I like it more than than that, I think. But I I would say that it's it's in that realm of like, the concept carries it uh, in a way that it's just kind of strange and <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. worth being like, hey, do you want to watch the movie where Tim Thomerson plays the 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 tiny alien Dirty Harry? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. <laughs> well, that that's it. It is more of like a novelty movie. And that's why I'm not going to go so far and and say, like, it's a four star. Awesome. Like, it's just so strange because it just doesn't quite get there. But it's got enough pianisms that I still have a love for it. So, yeah, it's a solid three for me. Well, I hate to I hate to strike a down note, guys, but I just have to call it like I see it. This is a two (laughs) for me. 
Um, Damn. I don't blame you. I think, I think <laughs> I do. Well, you know, I, <laughs> there's stuff here that I like. This is where the podcast war element is going to come <laughs> yeah, in. Doll Only man. one leaves doll is what man. Will said. <laughs> doll man creates the, the shift. Doll man has ended friendships. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I certainly like some of the spirit of it. I think some of the effects are fun in a silly sort of way. I think ultimately I find myself a little bored in the midsection. I think not enough was done with the potential of the premise. I think Tim Thomerson is a little bit of a stiff as a lead, to be honest. And, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to blame the movie for not having the resources to, um, do better with the special effects because I'm always up for a movie with more of a handcrafted feel but I feel like it just doesn't quite have enough of the imagination that I would expect from Albert Pune. So, um, sorry folks. (laughs) Don't worry. The guy who wrote the book on Albert Pune's coming in to dunk a three out of five. That's right. That's right. We got the experts, baby. That's what we do. I'll defer to Justin on this matter. (laughs) I agree with every single thing that Will said, (laughs) but, um, you know, I find it charming enough. It's not one that I ever go revisit. Giving it two and a half stars seemed, which is maybe what I would give. It feels too rough, too rough. It is weird. And on its own, there's nothing like it. It was popular enough to have a, spin-off doll man versus demonic toys which is mostly made up of footage <laughs> from this movie <laughs> and the previous demonic toys film and you know what? even in this moment this was right before albert pure knocked it out of the park with uh nemesis knights and the andrew dice clay classic brain smasher a love story so i can see the beginnings of all those movies here so i find it charming in its own way but it's not one that i would reach for and recommend to people who want to get into his filmography right yeah i would agree with that yeah for sure yeah i definitely yeah definitely agree all right, well, I think that will wrap it up for this week's episode. That was Radioactive Dreams um, from 1985 and Doll Man from 1991. Thanks so much, Will and uh, Justin, for yes. joining us and for talking about uh, Albert Pyun with us. We hope a lot of our listeners are going to go take the deep dive and go and watch his films and maybe pick up Justin's book. Buy which my will- book! Fine, yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is this is where uh, if you guys have anything that you would like to plug, uh, maybe even other than the book, uh, feel free to go ahead and do that. Well, uh, as it was previously mentioned, you can get Radioactive Dreams, the cinema of Albert Pyun, uh, on all Amazons because it's self-published through there. And you can also listen to me and Will on the podcast, The Important Cinema Club, which we do every week where we pick figures, topics, sometimes even just movies and talk about them. Deep dives. And hey, while we're here, we've got a couple of Important Cinema Club branded books that we also sell. Oh, yeah. There's The Important Cinema Club Journal and there's Moturn on Moturn about the films of Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh. Uh, So there's just there's just so much stuff that people can buy from us. Yeah. Buy your ticket. Yeah, you guys, to I love listening to your guys' show. You guys are always doing uh, the digging, uh, telling, fi- finding all of the. You know, I mean, I don't know that I would have watched Albert Pion's films without Justin. Um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. having a review of every single one of them that I saw. <laughs> that are, I, <laughs> I genuinely think that Justin is maybe the only man alive who's seen every Albert Pion film. I don't think even Albert Pion has seen every single one. That's not true. I know a guy, he's an important cinema club fan. He hangs around on our Discord. He owns almost every version of every Albert Pion film oh, ever. Wow, okay. wow. And it's wild. He's like, oh yeah, I have like four versions of Knights. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. 
Perfect. Well, well, thanks so much, guys, for uh, joining us this week. For for our uh, listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time, continuing a little bit of the pyun yeah because we're going to be doing for your guys' uh patron bonus episode we're going to be talking about some some 80s teen movies that kind of go adult crime genre in terms of their style trappings we're going to be talking about uh the uh toronto classic class of 1984 um by mark lester hell yeah and we're also going to be, and we're going to be pairing that with one of Pian's films that, you know, kind of was in a similar wheelhouse, though not as graphic. We're going to be talking about his canon film, uh, Dangerously Close from 1986, also starring John Stockwell from Radioactive um, Dreams. And both films very much are uh, taking sort of like the the uh, sort of punks versus conservatives and the rich kids versus the poor kids and doing it in, you know, sort of, uh, again, sort of like crime and in the cl- case of uh, Class of 1984 horror movie trappings yeah. by the end of that film. Very over the just, top. Um, insane. But yeah, I felt like we wanted to keep going with a little bit more of Albert Pion and Dangerously Close was one of kind of like the the weirder ones that I I watched of his because it was mm. kind of uh, him trying to be taken a little bit more seriously. And I thought some of the, uh, the sort of... Uh, Miami Vice MTV kind of stylization he tried to bring to that story, uh, you know, actually kind of worked. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know anything about them other than that. And uh, that's what you guys can expect to hear us talking about next week. And then the week after, we're going to be back with a special guest where we're going to be doing an insane double feature that I don't know uh, that I totally understand the pairing yet, <laughs> but I'm sure our guest will explain that's it to us. That's always fun. We're going we're gonna to be talking about Vampire's Kiss. Okay. Nicholas Cage. Hell yeah. As well as uh, Bad L- Abel Ferrer's Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. Well, the yeah, two I- films share an actor. Uh, no, wait. You said Abel Ferrer's. Never mind. Abel Ferrer's <laughs> Bad Lieutenant. Yes. Are you, sure, are you sure you didn't get the uh, Bad Lieutenants mixed up? I am sure. Okay. Um, I always wanted to get that Vampire's Kiss with American Psycho, so I'm curious as to why that one's paired. I, I'm very excited, though. Vampire's Kiss I n- am in love with, and I no haven't clue. actually watched that Lieutenant yet. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you'll have to ignore this announcement. We will We will find out. But I could have sworn that this is what the guest asked for, and I was like, you know what? Okay. Uh, we've, we've, had oh, weird, we've had weirder pairings before, um, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, that's what you guys can expect for the free episode in 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 two weeks. Um, Sweet. So yeah, I think that wraps up for everything this week. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>